Uh, I always um, encourage you to have a Bible open in front of you because it really doesn't matter what I have to say. Um, I kind of wish I was one of those uh, inspiring gurus who just, um, you know, could lead people by the force of my personality. But I really only have one, one tool, and that is the Word of God itself. That's the power. So I encourage you to uh, open it and see for yourself what it has to say. Um, and let's pray together as we come to God's Word. Heavenly Father, we confess our need for your help, and we ask that you would help us. Teach us by your word. Help us to uh, see it clearly, to get it right, and uh, to honor you with our lives as a result. We pray in Jesus' name and for his great glory. Amen. Why can't I get my act together? Why can't I finally do away with sin once and for all? Even when I seem to make some progress in obedience to God's commands, the goal of holiness seems to get farther and farther away. Perhaps you can relate to these feelings. You've put your faith in Jesus. You are seeking to follow Jesus. You want to obey God and follow his commands, and yet often your life doesn't match up to those desires. You're not always obedient to God. You still struggle with sin in your life. You want to obey God, and yet you also keep sinning. You experience a persistent inner conflict between the good things that God commands and the sinful desires within you that pull against God's commands. And in the midst of this ongoing struggle with sin, perhaps you wonder at times, am I really a Christian at all? Since I still struggle with sin, am I even born again? Am I truly saved? Well, if that is an accurate description of your life, do not despair. Because even the great Apostle Paul had the very same internal conflict. And in these verses, he recounts his own conflict for us. We learn that this struggle uh, against sin is the normal Christian experience. Now, you should know that not everyone reads this passage that way. This passage before us is hotly debated. Some excellent interpreters believe that these verses describe the spiritual experience of an unsaved person. Paul's doing sort of a flashback to his life before being a Christian. Other excellent interpreters believe that these verses describe the spiritual experience of a saved person. Why is there such a debate? Because there is major tension in these verses. Let me show you. First of all, it seems most natural that Paul is talking about his own present experience. That's my conclusion. Uh, and the reason for this conclusion is that Paul is speaking in the first person, I. 
and in the present tense, I am of the flesh, verse 14. Verse 15, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. And so on, all the way through, present tense verbs. So if Paul's speaking of a different time or of a different person, he gives us no grammatical signal of that. So the most natural way to read these verses is that Paul is speaking of his own present experience as a believer. But this presents some major theological questions. There's tension. Some cannot see how these verses can describe the experience of a Christian person. For example, verse 14 We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Those are strong words to describe a Christian, sold under sin. Would Paul speak this way about himself as a Christian, that he is sold under sin? After all, in chapter 6, chapter 6, 18, chapter 6, 22, Paul says that even, he says that in Christ, We have been set free from sin. We have become slaves to God instead. We've been set free from sin. So how can we be sold under sin? That's a tension. If Paul is talking about himself as a Christian, then there must be one sense in which he is set free from sin and another sense in which he is still sold under sin. The other tension is there in verse 18. Paul writes, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Would Paul say that a Christian does not have the ability to do what is right? After all, Paul is about to tell us in chapter 8 that by the Holy Spirit of God, we do have the ability to please God. So these tensions, these very real tensions, are why the interpreters are divided. But my view is that Paul is describing his own present Christian experience and ours. So that's the way I'll be going with this sermon. And whether or not you read this passage that way, We can all agree that even as Christians saved by Jesus Christ, we still struggle with sin, don't we? I think the tension in these verses, the conflict, is the whole point. The saved person still struggles with sin in this life. In fact, it is the struggle against sin that is the very mark of a saved person. And I hope these verses will give you clarity about why we still struggle with sin despite our best desires and intentions. Why do we still struggle with sin in the Christian life? And I hope these verses will give you comfort. Comfort in the midst of your struggle with sin. Well, in last week's passage, the Apostle Paul, uh, his point was that the law of God is not our chief problem. Rather, sin is our problem. 
The law of God is good and righteous and holy and true, but it's sin within us that exploits God's good command and brings us into condemnation. And Paul continues the same argument in verse 14, but he applies it to himself personally. He draws a contrast between the law of God, which is good, and himself, since he is sinful. Look again at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. The law of God is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. Or uh, to offer my own paraphrase, we know that the law of God is good, but I am not good. And why does Paul say this about himself? Verse 15 explains why. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. What is it that Paul hates? It is sin that Paul hates. Paul wants to do what is good. He wants to obey God. He wants to fulfill God's law. But for some reason, he does the very thing he has now come to hate. Sin. And so he's perplexed and confused by his own actions. Now, in my view, this can only be true of a saved person. A regenerate person or as Jesus says, a person who is born again, a person with a new heart, uh, as was read for us in the first scripture reading, who has the law of God written within them. This is the only kind of person uh, who can say that they want to do good and they hate sin. Paul hates sin. He doesn't want to do it but yet he keeps on doing it instead of the good that he now longs to do. And Paul says this internal conflict he has is actually a demonstration of the goodness of the law. As Paul says in verse 16, Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Even when Paul sins, his desire not to keep on sinning is a kind of agreement from the heart that the law of God is good. The law of God is true and holy and right. The law of God is not just a a list of do's and don'ts. It is a reflection of God's pure and holy and righteous character. And yet the good That Paul desires, he doesn't always do. And sometimes he does the sin he has grown to hate. So the Christian has begun to have new desires to love what is holy and to hate what is sin. And yet the Christian still does the sin that he has come to hate. Paul describes our sin in a very surprising way in this passage. Look look with me at the shocking way he describes it in verse 17. Uh, Paul says of his sinful actions, So now it is no longer I who do it, 
but sin that dwells within me. Now that word now in verse 17 is a time marker. It suggests to me that Paul is speaking of his own now. Now, now that I'm in Christ, it's no longer I who do this thing that I hate, this sin. It is sin that dwells within me that is doing it. And he repeats the same phrase almost verbatim again at the end of verse 20. It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now, I don't know if um, this would fly with, with your kids getting in trouble. I don't know if, if they said, well, it's not me that did it, it's sin within me. I don't know if that would wash. Isn't it strange that Paul says, now when he sins, it is no longer he who does it, but sin that dwells in him that is doing it. Is this like the so-called ambient defense? Named after the popular sleep drug that has people driving around while they're sleeping, making ill-considered tweets while they're sleeping, murdering people in their sleep, allegedly. Those are all straight out of the headlines. You can check it out yourself. No, Paul isn't saying that he isn't sinning. He takes personal responsibility. Look at verse 15. He says, I do the very thing that I hate. He's not having some strange dissociative state. He is the one sinning, but his shocking statement is that when he is sinning, it is no longer he who is doing it. And this highlights the radical identity change for the Christian person. I don't think that an unsaved person could say this. It is no longer I who do it. There's been a radical identity change. As Christians, our primary identity has changed. Our center of being has been transferred. There's now a new self within ourself that is now our primary self. When we sin before Christ, we're the ones doing it, and it's all us. But now in Christ, when we sin... It's not the true us, the new us, the real us that is doing it. Our center of identity has shifted and our primary identity is now the redeemed person within us. And the sin we keep on doing is being generated from elsewhere. From where? From the old self that still dwells within Now, of course, we're still doing it. We're still morally culpable. But the evil that we do is not the new us in Christ. It is the old us, the lingering sin that dwells within us that is passing away, not the new us that abides forever in Christ. Isn't that extraordinary that for a Christian we now have a completely new identity? So much so that the old sinful self, the flesh, is no longer our true identity. This term, the flesh, that Paul uses here is somewhat hard to define. Now, the English word flesh makes us think primarily of our physical bodies. 
the meat on our bones or the meat and the bones. But the biblical idea of the flesh is more than that. The flesh is not just our physical bodies, it is also our sinful nature, our corrupt inner self. It is our old, corrupt self that is opposed to God and who could never please God by our own efforts, despite our best attempts. And Paul explains the moral deficiency of his flesh that still dwells within him in verse 18 and following. Listen again to verse 18 and following. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out in my flesh. For I do not do the good I want, but the very evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Nothing good dwells in Paul's flesh. In his flesh, Paul lacks the ability to do what is right, and so do we. In his flesh, evil is always lurking. And because of the flesh, Paul is still captive to the law of sin. So this is the conflict. The Christian has a new heart, a new mind, And with that new heart comes an invasion of new desires, godly desires. A born-again person, as Jesus puts it, has a new desire that wasn't there before, a desire to do what is right, a desire to know and love God, to please God. Only a born-again person with a transformed heart could say in verse 18, I have the desire to do what is right. And even stronger in verse 22, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That word delight is such a strong word. It speaks of sheer joy, of a hunger and a thirst and a craving and a feasting on God's righteousness and his holiness. We now delight in the perfect character of God, which is expressed in his law. And yet these new godly desires are opposed by the sin that still dwells within us in our flesh. Have you experienced this war that Paul is talking about in himself? Do you know this internal conflict? If you do experience this internal conflict, it doesn't mean that you are not saved. Quite the contrary, it is a sign of the new birth within you. After all, it is our new godly desires that produce the war within us. 
Where there are no godly desires, there's no war to speak of. There's no conflict. For the unbeliever, the sin that dwells in our flesh goes unchecked. There is no war. There's no opposition. But for the believer, there is a war, an ongoing war, between the sin that dwells in our flesh and the new yearning for godliness, which is brought about within us by the Holy Spirit in our inner being. I often see the bumper sticker, I'm already against the next war. And it's, I, I, it's a bit naive. There are some wars that have to be fought. There are some wars that are worth fighting. But I can appreciate the sentiment because there is nothing about war that is good or pleasant. War is miserable. The conflict within us produces misery, a sense of sorrow and regret over the remaining sin within us. I can't believe I did it again. I can't believe I keep doing that. I can't believe I am not yet the person that I long to be. I don't want to do that anymore, but I keep on failing. I keep on sinning. This war within us causes great sorrow, as all war tends to do. But, believer, take courage, because this sorrow, too, is a sign of God's redeeming work within you. It's a good sorrow, a godly sorrow. It means that we now have new godly desires growing within us, and we are not at all happy with our sin. So if you are a Christian and you are experiencing this war within you, praise the Lord. It's a sign of God's renewing, transforming, regenerating work within. Where there's no new birth, where there's no change of heart, there is no war to speak of. There are no godly desires, no godly sorrow over sin, because where there's no new birth, the flesh already has dominion over the whole territory. So in a way, paradoxically, surprisingly, the sign of God's redeeming work in us is spiritual conflict and sorrow. So if you thought, as many people do, that Jesus was going to get you cleaned up and then you were going to go out there and live the perfect, victorious Christian life and never deal with sin again, you had a wrong expectation. Think again. We will get there. We will achieve perfection. But it will be at the expense of our life. It will not be while we, were, we are still in this flesh. As long as we're in this flesh, as long as we're in this world, we are going to be continually contending with sin. We are going to keep on fighting this fight for as long as we are in this flesh. 
So while Christian moral perfection is a great aspiration, and while pleasing the Lord and walking in obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit is the goal of the Christian life, we need a sober assessment that we will never actually attain it in this life. But don't worry, don't despair. God's plan was never to save us by our moral perfection. His plan was to save us by the moral perfection of Christ. We are called to pursue holiness, but we never attain perfect holiness in this life. But Jesus lived out perfect holiness. Jesus was the perfect embodiment of the living God, holy, holy, holy. Jesus is the perfect embodiment of all of God's moral perfections. As Hebrews 1.3 says of Jesus, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That means that Everything that God is, Jesus is. Everything that God is in his holiness, in his moral perfection, in his incomparable virtue, Jesus was as a man and is. Jesus was completely holy, completely righteous, the perfect fulfillment of God's moral law the complete embodiment of God's moral perfection. And we are saved because of Christ's moral perfection on our behalf, not by our own. He took our sin upon himself at the cross in the great exchange. He took our sin upon himself and we are made holy by the blood of Jesus. In Christ, we are clothed in his perfect righteousness. So we don't need to despair over this conflict. Our salvation does not depend on our own moral perfection. Your salvation does not depend on your own moral perfection. It never has and it never will. And that's a good thing because you'll never get there until the new creation. Thank God our salvation rests on the moral perfection of Christ. But despite this glorious news, despite the fact that we are counted righteous by faith in Jesus, the real life daily experience of this Christian life is one of constant war. War between our new nature in Christ and the sin that dwells within our flesh. And even though this war within us is an evidence, an encouraging sign of God's salvation at work within us, it is also exhausting, isn't it? And it was exhausting for Paul, too. It made him cry out in exhaustion, In verse 24, 
wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul had had enough of the struggle. He had had enough of the failure. He had had enough of the sinning. And so he cries out in exhaustion, in fatigue, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? When will I be done with this struggle? How will I finally be airlifted out of this incessant conflict with sin? Can you relate to that feeling of exhaustion? But Paul's question is rhetorical. He's not wondering who will rescue him. He knows who will rescue him. So he answers this question right away in verse 25. Who will rescue us from this wretched state? Who will rescue us from this war with the sinful flesh? Verse 25 is the answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. God will deliver us. He is going to airlift us out of this conflict and he is going to do it through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul longs for the day and he knows it is coming when God will grant him final exit from his sinful flesh. When his struggle with sin will be no more. When the new man that is born within him will have no more conflict with the lingering fallen nature of Adam. When we die, or when Jesus comes again, we will be fully and finally delivered from the flesh. If we have trusted in Christ, when we die or when Jesus comes again, we will be fully and finally delivered from the flesh, airlifted out of this conflict. Won't that be spectacular? to be unhindered in our obedience to God's holy character. But until that day, the conflict continues. Let me close with a quote from J.C. Ryle from his book, Holiness. True Christianity is a fight. Do we find in our heart a spiritual struggle? Do we feel anything of the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh so that we cannot do the things that we would? Are we conscious of two principles within us contending for mastery? Do we feel anything of war in our inward man? Well, let us thank God for it. It is a good sign it is strongly probable evidence of the great work of sanctification. All true saints are soldiers. Anything is better than apathy, stagnation, deadness, and indifference. We are in a better state than many. The most part of so-called Christians have no feeling at all. I say again, let us take comfort. The children of God have two great marks, he says. 
They may be known by their inward warfare as well as by their inward peace. So if you're here this morning and you don't know anything about this struggle at all, there is no struggle. Perhaps you are not yet born again. Perhaps you have not yet laid hold of Jesus Christ and had a new self born within you by the power of God through the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And if you have not yet experienced this warfare between the law of God and the flesh that we've been talking about in this passage, I want to invite you into the conflict this morning. I want to invite you into the war by faith in Jesus Christ. Lay hold of him, believe in him today, and a new nature will be born within you. Or perhaps you have believed in Jesus, but you have so tuned out the conviction of the Holy Spirit that his voice is now almost inaudible. It is as if there is no war because you have put yourself into an insulated room and you cannot hear the screaming voice of God because you are, you are bunkered down in your sin. If that's your situation, I want to encourage you also to cry out to Jesus in repentance. In repentance and faith and ask him to do his heart transforming work within you even more. Ask him to produce in you new and godly desires. Ask him to call you back to the fight. Ask him to give you a delight in God's holiness and moral perfection, a hunger and a thirst to obey God. Ask God to work in you a new fight against the flesh. Put all of your trust in Jesus, the only perfect one, and the second mark that Ryle talks about will be yours. The first mark is inward warfare. The second mark of the true believer is inward peace. And inward peace only comes from trusting in Christ's saving work. And for those of us this morning who want to please God, who want to obey him, who want to live out his holy commands, and yet actual perfect obedience seems to get farther and farther away, let us take comfort that the struggle with sin within us is the evidence of God's good, saving, and transforming work. And one day, he will deliver us fully and finally. Let's pray together. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me 
from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.